You are listening to the Women of Wonder podcast, where we want to see sisters soar. We hope that you are inspired by this message. So let's start with this prayer. Take a breath and know the presence of God enters you and is with you every time you breathe. And let us pray. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road. Though I may not, I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear. You are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. So just a quick review. The seminar series started off two years ago with Jeffra Pua, who we find in the first chapter of Exodus, who Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney states here, Shifra and Pua become the first deliverers in the book of deliverance. Just hold that in mind too, because I think that's really significant. I think one of the main reasons I found such a direction and voice in the women of Exodus is this kind of reflecting on biblical womanhood, right? We're, we're talking at wow, we're talking about women in scripture. And I think that for many of us, what we've been given, what we've inherited, what we've received about what biblical womanhood means is not necessarily what is biblical womanhood. And the women of Exodus break through all of that and show us such a tremendous and beautiful picture of biblical womanhood that I just adore and want to lean into. As we look at these ancient women, we take off subordination and an inferiority. So Shifra and Pua are the midwives. So in the beginning of Exodus, when the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh decrees that all the baby boys will be killed and the midwives will be, will be quietly doing it. And they say, no, they defy the Pharaoh. They make, they lie to him and they say, we just don't get to the Hebrew women quick enough. They, they deliver too quickly. And so, although they aren't ultimately successful because Pharaoh then decrees that they will be killed and has them killed anyway, they set out a resistance. They make Pharaoh own what he is doing. They're not going to let him do it in secret. And so this, the power that starts off with Exodus 1 is just incredible. As we move into Exodus part 2, which I chose last year to focus on the mothers of Moses, so Pharaoh's daughter and his biological mother, Yochaved. Touched a little bit on Miriam last year, especially in that place, but I think the focus when we started to talk about this term Ezer, this theme of this, these last couple of years have been Ezer, right? Like what it means to be Ezer, the Hebrew word for helper. And again, taking off that veil of inferiority and subordination so that we have of womanhood, you know, when helper Ezer comes up in the Genesis text of Adam and Eve. And so therefore we often associate this word with helpmate or an assistant as someone lesser than the Adam. As we dig into that text, we recognize that Adam and Eve were together as one made in the image of God. And Eve was not created as a separate second, but taken and that was split into two. So it's, it's not a lesser than model that we receive in Ezra. And I lean into this definition of Ezra as a partnership more than a helpmate, that what we're really being called to is unity, that we are all separated from each other, that when we see each other as ourself, 
we join in the oneness that we are created to be. And that that is the call of all of us, not the call of women, but that is the call of everybody to be the Ezer, to be the helper of the other and in that coming together. So Miriam is known as the mother of the women prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. She's the first woman in the canon identified as a prophet and named in more biblical books than any other woman. As a child, she helps usher Moses along the Nile River, right? And ensures his safekeeping with Pharaoh's daughter and her relationship to her, his biological mother. She leads the Hebrew women in singing and dancing and playing the drums after crossing the Reed Sea, or otherwise known as the Red Sea. She and her brother Aaron together challenge the actions and authority of Moses in this story, which she is punished for. So I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but it is... Uh, because she challenges Moses, she gets stricken with a skin disease that lasts for a week. Moses prays for her and she recovers. It's said too in that story that her people would not move on without her, that as she recovered, they waited, they sat, they did not carry on until she was healed. So lastly, then, just to create this framework in the Talmud, essentially the Jewish commentary for lack of a better way of explaining the Talmud, Miriam is reckoned as the only woman included among the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, and Benjamin, over whom neither the angel of death nor the worms of earth had dominion. So this kind of reflection in Hebrew scripture kind of believes that there were a number of of patriarchs who never experienced the fullness of death in that respect. And Miriam is the only woman included in that list. So she is in her time, a prominent figure and in throughout Jewish and Christian history, a prominent figure just to hold her significance, even though in the scripture, there aren't a whole lot of verses. And part of why I struggled for inspiration is it's not like there's this beautiful story a full text that I can give you on Miriam. It's these bits that we get. Her presence is there through the whole of Exodus, but we'd only get bits of it. And the biggest bit we get is of her being punished. Okay, so now on to our text for today. Again, I just said we, I didn't really know what text to use because there's not that much. But Dr. Wilda Gaffney, so if she is a Hebrew scholar and an Episcopalian priest, but she has created this Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church, which my church has been using for this past year. So if you are in a tradition that uses the lectionary, right, it's a Old Testament, New Testament, gospel, and a psalm generally for each Sunday that follows the church calendar. I don't know how long it's been in the church history, but generally they are the same as used. And it's in a three-year course, so it's used over and over again. And not all of the text is included, but all these selected passages. She creates her own, right? So she chooses out her own passages for each day of the, the year and focuses on a gender-expansive, woman and girl-centered biblical stories. As a Hebrew scholar, she translates herself, the scripture, from Hebrew and uses intentionally language that pulls us out of maybe a patriarchal reading. So includes feminine language and stretches the name of God to include the feminine in ways that we might not always see. And so I wanted to use her translations here. And I'm using two passages that happen to be in the Monday Thursday text because um, they both connect to where I'm, where I did to wanted to go today. So all that to say, I'm just going to read 19 through 21 is where Miriam comes in, but I wanted to read the whole chapter because or this whole passage because it's beautiful. 
So Exodus 15, 11 through 21. Who is like you, mighty one, among the gods? Who is like you, resplendent in holiness, revered, praiseworthy, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You led in your faithful love the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples heard they quaked, hangs like labor seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed, the rulers of Moab trembling seized them, and all the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them. By the might of your arm, they became still as stone until your people redeeming God passed by, until the people whom you acquired passed by. You brought them and planted them on the mountain of your own possession, the place, sheltering God, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary most high God that your hands have established. The everlasting God will reign forever and ever. The horse of Pharaoh and his chariots and charioteers went into the sea, and the mighty God turned the waters of the sea back upon them. But the daughters and sons of Israel walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a hand drum in her hand, and all the women went out after her with hand drums and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, women and men, sing to the indomitable God who has triumphed triumphantly. Horse and rider God has thrown into the sea. The second passage, or our Hebrews passage, is from chapter 11, verses 23 and 28. By faith, Moses was hidden after birth by his mother and father for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, after he had grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, rather choosing ill treatment with the people of God than enjoyment of the transitory pleasures of sin. He considered abuse for the sake of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward by faith, he left Egypt, unafraid of the anger of the king, for he persisted as though he saw the unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood in order that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn daughters and sons of Israel. So here in this Maundy Thursday lectionary, Wilda Gaffney ties together the song of the sea in Exodus with the Hebrews passage that reveals the faith of Moses in Hebrews. And then I didn't include it, but also, the gospel passage for that week is the one that includes the, the Passover meal of Christ. Take and eat. This is my body. See, Passover, the Holy Week, and Easter are linked seasonally, thematically, and theologically. Themes of death and liberation, fear and faith and redemption. And so I thought it was beautiful of the Spirit to kind of nudge me in this way that I found these texts together. Hebrews 11 is one of these passages that I have, it has been an anchor for me for years. Basically, the he went out not knowing where he was going. This theme of faith that is described by the cloud of witnesses that is written in this text of Hebrews that tells the story of God's people, Israel, has this message of faith for us. And that is tied to our Song of the Sea by Miriam. In Exodus, and I thought that was no coincidence. What does the story of Miriam and Moses mean for me in my own experience? Telling this story of my own journey with a hope that the reflection I have of Miriam and her role for Moses and for the people of God impacts how I receive and perceive my own experience. And I invite you to also to see how God might be using this story to reveal the model of biblical womanhood 
the model of mentorship by Miriam to you. I'll talk more about my journey in a bit. Like I said, as a case study for now, this piece of Moses is significant because where this story connects, where it resonates for me is that when Moses saw Miriam, he knew himself. Moses was in Egypt. He was an Egyptian. He was the child of Pharaoh's daughter, and he could have lost sight of his true identity. In my sacred imagination, believe that it was Miriam who stood like a mirror of the truth and a reflection of her faith is what inspired him. We don't know the full story of Miriam. We don't, we definitely don't know her childhood more than the moment she speaks to Pharaoh's daughter. But I like to believe that whether she was on the other side of the river with the Hebrew people toiling in labor, or she was working as a servant in the royal home alongside her brother Moses, who was in a very different position, I believe that she held a connection to Moses. And she was the one who told him the news of what was happening on the other side of the river, reminded him of his family there, that she would teach him the songs of the Hebrew children, that she would be that connection for him. And when he saw her, he remembered himself and didn't get lost in the world that he was growing up in. And I believe that because if it wasn't for that, how did he know? Miriam's our strongest I think, a proponent for being that person. So I like to believe that. As we read, Miriam constantly reminding him of his true nature. And then we read in Hebrews 11, verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt unafraid of the anger of the king, for he persisted as though he saw the unseen. I believe he saw the unseen because he saw Miriam. He saw what Egyptian wealth and comfort meant to the Hebrew. He saw the oppression, the pain, and the despair. And it was not separate from him. It was his own because she was his. And this was his faith. Miriam's faith and experience became his faith that allowed him to be unafraid of the anger of the king, unafraid to leave temptations of the transitory pleasures of sin. I totally got that wrong, but you know what I mean, that we all know the comforts of Egypt must have been appealing. And yet he chose otherwise. Just to remind us of this word, Ezer, and its meaning is helper, a helper that saves. So Ezer is, although it's used to refer to Adam and Eve in that Genesis text, the, the predominant use of the word Ezer in scripture is to refer to God. And Ezer in this context means a helper that saves, a helper that restores and brings another out of despair in times of trouble. Almost entirely in scripture, this helper is God. And there is a strong implication of deliverance when the word is used. Remember, our book of deliverance, our women of deliverance. So Psalm 115 is one of the many examples of where the word Ezra is used. So I just wanted to read these three verses just to have that in, a, in our, our context. Psalm 115.9, all you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. So who helped Moses? Who helped deliver him out of Egypt? I do believe Miriam played a very significant role. And if you were here last month with Jessica Brooks, she also reminded us yet again that Moses would not have been Moses if not for the women around him, the people around him. And I believe that is true here. Okay, so back to my story. I grew up in the Midwest, the third and youngest child of parents that emigrated from Finland. In the Nordic tradition, we joined the Lutheran church and we 
in the American tradition, went to church every Sunday. And so I grew up Lutheran and I still love a lot about the Lutheran tradition. And there are some things that I don't, but it has made an impact on me and who I am and in a lot of good ways. But I just wanted you to know that part of my background as I kind of lead into something in my personal journey. Another disclaimer is that I recognize that I am a white woman speaking to a group of predominant BIPOC individuals, and I recognize that my experience is from a white experience, and that has its very unique Christian flavor. And so your my experience may not be yours at all, and my criticisms of the church may not be yours at all. I hope that that's true, but I feel like what I have experienced and what I know of my own experience is has revealed great deal to me. So I hope that's helpful to you. So I grew up Lutheran um, and then found my way to New York. And when I came to New York, there's not a lot of Lutheran churches. So I found myself in a non-denominational church. Um, and it was a small community church where I felt immediately welcomed and immediate great relationships formed um, that you've seen, long lasting ones, including my husband. That aside, it's been my home for the last 15 years, and it has been through many, many iterations. Currently, I'm the sole pastor and the only staff member. We have been asking for the last several years questions of whether we'll keep going and what church is supposed to be. And in the past, we had closer to 100 members. We had servant leader teams. We had multiple staff members. We had interns. We had dreams of growing into other communities. And right now we look very different to many. We would, and maybe even to ourselves, we look like we've failed, that we've fallen apart. Um, and maybe we have, but from my perspective, it isn't because we didn't succeed in following God, but rather have followed God. And this is where God has brought us. Now jumping forward to today or last year, our head pastor stepped down from his pastoral role. He's still part of our community, but stepped down. Two things have been happening simultaneously, right? We were a church plant. As the model of the church plant, we had financial supporters and they were to, after 10 years, start winning their support to see if we would be financially sustainable. And we weren't. That I think wasn't the full and complete reason why we started asking questions, but it was definitely a nudge to have us really consider what church is and what we wanted to be. And so since then, we've made all of these shedding, like we, we stopped having a full worship team. It felt too performative. We stopped renting the auditorium that we were renting because of finances and because it felt too big. We met in the cafe that we also own and restructured our services into a circle gathering instead of a preacher standing in front of a group gathering that we sought to be a church more like the Church of Acts, we sought to decentralize, we sought to break the, the model of leadership and patriarchy that we were in, that we inherited in the Christian Church of America, at least that, that I am familiar with. And that's been a process and it's been one kind of layer after the other. And then the pandemic hit and that was a whole other layer of questions and searching. And, and so this last year, our pastor stepped down feeling that it wasn't appropriate any longer for a cis white male to be leading this community and it, and all the attempts to make it a non-hierarchical community, a collective, it wasn't really happening when there was still that person in that place that we had been used to being pastor leader. 
that left me as the only as his co-pastor that left me as the only staff member. And the last year has been in, at least for my purpose has felt like trying to figure out how I would be. And I say soul pastor instead of lead pastor, because it was very intentional that I wouldn't just step into the shoes of the pastor before me and become another lead pastor in a female body. It just is a whole new model that we want. And so the last year we started having every other Monday conversations in addition to our Sunday services that everyone were invited to, that we would really consider what this looks like and how we move forward and what we do. And we've used a couple of different resources. The first you see on this page in Emergent Strategy, Adrienne Marie Brown is not necessarily a Christian, but offers a lot of tools and practices for kind of collective movement that we were seeking. So emergent strategy, as defined by the book itself, is a strategy for building complex patterns and systems of change through relatively small interactions, an adaptive relational way of being that causes transformation. One of the pivotal questions asked in the book that has kind of been an anchor for myself was how do we turn our collective full-bodied intelligence towards collaboration if that is the way we will survive? So Adrian Marie Brown uses a lot of nature images and connects us to natural systems. And she talks about birds. So here's what she says. Birds don't make a plan to migrate, raising resources to fund their way, packing for scarce times, mapping out their pit stops. They feel a call in their bodies that they must go and they follow it, responding to each other, each bringing their adaptations. And this sounds a little biblical to me. If you remember Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? This imagery that the birds give us is, I think, very significant. As you see a V being formed, it looks like there is a leader, but that leader doesn't stay in that position very long. They rotate because that's a very exhausting role to play. And the really beautiful piece that I think that this draws out is as we feel a call in our bodies that we go, we follow and we respond to each other. So the birds, I think she says this elsewhere in the book, and I'm going to paraphrase completely, but the birds in the back there don't look at this guy in the front as their leader. They're not like, oh, what did he say up there? They actually move because of the bird next to them. The birds respond to the bird, two or three birds around them. And that's how they move. And so although this guy is in front, break, you know, facing the wind, I presume that what that means is the guy in the back, if he senses something in the wind or something happening in the air that needs to be create a change, he will shift. And that adaptation will, will trickle down to his neighbor. And then that neighbor will move. And then the whole movement is moving forward because they're responding to the few around them. And if that isn't a definition of mentorship, it'll, and a better model for our churches than a pastoral leader, I don't know what is. We are meant to, in these relatively small interactions, pay attention to the few next to us because they might have insight we don't have over here. And that moves us all forward. That is what Miriam did, right? In the Jewish tradition, Miriam is seen as bringing the gift of water into the desert. In Numbers 20, verse 1, we learn of the death of Miriam. And then in verse 2, immediately it states that now there was no water for the community. So the rabbinic tradition has interpreted this to mean that Miriam was the source of the water. 
So she has been known and believed to have been a provider of that nourishment for her people. And I think it is a symbol of her faith that Miriam was before Moses, well before Moses, she was a pastor to her people. She has been pastoring her people in the days that Moses was being raised in Egypt. And her faith and her witness of her experience to her brother gave him eyes to see and faith to move that he wouldn't have had on his own. But he responds to her like the bird next to him because she has a wisdom and an insight in her own body and experience. Miriam not only held the truth of Egypt's prosperity in her body, right? You can't ignore what this wealth and comfort is coming at the cost of when it is your sister's body carrying the burden. And it gave Moses eyes to see, and that gave life and nourishment in the wilderness to God's people. Moses learned faith from her because he learned to see with her eyes. This is the second book that my church has been going through, and we're actually still currently going through it. Who Will Be a Witness by Drew Hart. This book has given me a couple pieces of language that just articulate a really strong foundation for, I think, a lot of what I've been experiencing and seeing and learning in, um, in my own experience as I reflect on my church and my role as a pastor. Drew Hart has said that Western civilization was conflated with Christianity. At least in my experience studying theology, this word syncretism comes up. And the way that I learned it in the theological context is that it means the combination or fusion of different beliefs, but particularly the unsaid or maybe sometimes subtly said was that we need to be careful when we bring Christianity into other places, uh, non-Western places, that the practices and the beliefs of those cultures don't start to get mixed up with the Christianity. But the irony is Western civilization is already so conflated with Christianity that the thing that we're disallowing from other cultures is actual Christ Christianity, but it is not Western civilization culture. And so we really need to consider where and how this statement is true. And I have found it in my experience to be powerfully true. You know, when we started pulling at the threads of Church of Park, so we tried to figure out how to make the worship not performative. We tried to figure out how to do things without money. We tried to figure out how to do things that would center the marginalized, that would include people that might not want an intellectual conversation. They would include the children, to include all of these things that are not capitalistic Western civilization thought, but are Christ's. And I think that what True Heart says here, and it's a long quote, but I think it's very poignant, is that we really need to reflect on these things, at least from myself as a white woman Christian in this country, I have very much needed to reflect on the past and what I have inherited in Christianity. So Drew Hart writes, to get a better handle on the captivity of the church, to supremacist identities, mindsets, and ways of living, we need to know our past. The past is never just in the past. It lives on with us. It returns and remains with us in a variety of ways. It is most dangerous when it binds its victims without them knowing it. When we ignore the inertia of what has come before us, we are unable to resist history from puppeting us. We dance and jump to on command without realizing why. We need opportunities to see the ways that the history of Christendom and colonialism have mangled our political imagination. 
if we can begin to see the supremacist mindsets woven into American Christianity, we can begin pulling on the threads and unraveling the idolatry that defines the church's ongoing sociopolitical vocation. This is a necessary step toward repentance so we can faithfully collaborate with the delivering presence of God in our world. The second kind of foundational piece of Drew Hart's book that has become so such an anchor for me is this quote that he actually shares from Frederick Douglass many years ago. Frederick Douglass, a former enslaved man who after getting free, unveiled the hypocrisy in what he witnessed. What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocrisy hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason, but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds and the grossest of all libels. There's a lot in that, but the truth is as old as that quote is, I still feel that it holds a lot of truth. And as I have pulled at the threads of my own church experience in the Christianity that has been inherited, Christianity that white supremacy pervades in, the Christianity that is around us so predominantly in this country, unfortunately, this quote still feels so true. And to love the one is to hate the other. What this means for me is that I don't have eyes to see all that in my whiteness, I, I can't always see. And I need Miriam. I am like Moses and I need a Miriam who has, has experienced the world and knows a faith that I can't even imagine. It requires, and for me, I've been trying to figure out what that means. Like I need direct mentorship of Black women, Black women pastors. I need to highlight the experiences of the BIPOC in my community. I need to pass the torch. I need to not lead. We need to lead from the margins. What I say here is that it requires our intimate communion with those for whom the world is not liberating. I need intimate communion with those for whom the world is not liberating. I need to know what the birds around me are seeing and experiencing so that we can all move together in the oneness that we are being called to move. It's our hope at Church of Park Slope, but I'm not sure that we fully achieved it yet. And I'm not sure exactly how to continue letting the Miriams around me lead, but I know that it's necessary because I don't have the eyes to see. And I try to listen and I listen to these, these voices in these books who have been leading. And I listen to the, the communities of Christ that are leading in the way of, of that proper Christianity, of that truth of Christ in a way that is for the flourishing of all, leaving us with this last quote from the Drew Hart book. Beloved community is another way of talking about the present fragile communities that can emerge when God's delivering presence becomes real in our lives, even amid oppression around us. A community that gives, receives, and shares love. Love of our neighbor is ultimately rooted in our inherent interconnectedness as God's creation. This can also be understood through the South African word Ubuntu, which means Christians, which Christians have borrowed to explain our connectedness and communally bounded life together.
on this earth. Love is the means and the ends because God's future for us has broken into our present. So as we seek, as our communities, mentorship is at the heart. What does the story of Miriam reveal to you in your journey? What are some areas we need greater liberation in our own lives? And how might mentorship help in that process? And what could you do to be in communion with those whom the world has not liberated? We hope that you enjoyed this teaching. We are a community that walks alongside women to uncover and affirm their calling through prayer, teaching, and celebration. Visit womenofwonder.us to learn more.